And we are back with Cibolo Creek Conversations. My name is Wyatt Marchant, and I'm with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Did you like how I said my name the correct way that time? Yeah, that was that was nice. Yeah. Trying yeah, to get here, listen to this. Um, most so our listening audience, which w- must include at least each of our moms. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, I can say. It's nice to be back in the studio. Yeah. What people don't know is we've taken two weeks, two weeks off with all the preparations and everything around Easter, and we uh, we didn't get in here and record a podcast. So good to be back in the studio with you, Wyatt. Yeah, I kind of got into the kind of got into the swing of it. it. Sounds so official when you say it that way, too. <laughs> back in the studio, uh, but yeah, no, I did get into the swing of it, but. But anyways, we're back now, um, and I'm excited to be back. But um, as we kind of started last time, I believe, we started covering some questions that um, the congregation at Cibolo Creek had uh, on our Q&A Sunday um, to where they could just get to send in questions um, via the text, a text tool, and Paul will answer it on stage in real time. So there's no preparation or any of that. Um, and so, but obviously, because we only have like an hour in the service time, he can't answer all the questions and he can't really jump into um, the depth that some of them might require. So we're covering them now. Um, and we got a lot of questions, all kinds of different topics, but one of the big ones that came in a variety of different forms was around the LGBTQ plus um, community and uh, how to treat them and um, uh, love them well while simultaneously not, I guess, compromising on what a follower of Christ might believe or hold to be true. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so anyways, we are going to jump into that question and... Obviously, it's kind of a, a touchy one, but um, for, I guess for some people, but I think it's really important, um, especially with just the gravity that it has in society right now and how many people are either identifying with some uh, part of the LGBTQ plus community um, or aspect of it, or who are at least struggling with the idea of it. And so we wanted to cover that today. That sound good? That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, you're you're exactly right. It is an incredibly sensitive, very polarizing, um, very divisive sort of conversation, um, and it makes sense. I mean, we're we're talking about real people with real lives, and um, in in many cases, or in all the cases, you know, there's people who. These are their sons and daughters, their moms and dads, their aunts and uncles, their best friends, and and these are people that are loved and trying to navigate um, a loving relationship and all the dynamics of that when people hold, perhaps hold very different diverging views about the topic. Um, it does. It makes it for, uh, it's full of landmines and potential misunderstandings and hurt feelings and um, certainly <laughs> leads to lots of different 
arguments and sometimes yeah. uh, the ends of ends of relationships and friendships, which is incredibly unfortunate. So, yeah, I, it's interesting to jump into it, and I hope that what we have to share today is is helpful and beneficial and constructive in some way. I don't have any. I don't have any imaginations that something we're going to share here today is going to um, be so revolutionary that changes the course of the discussion, but um, maybe just provide some perspective on it that could be helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> no, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've even noticed like, like this all started, I think at least a lot of the cultural um, upheaval or at least where people kind of started butting heads was with pronouns it seems um, what you know whether it's he him she they or the multitude of others that's kind of where a lot of this started and people kind of started seeing it in the real life like in on c campuses college campuses and schools or even in the workplace um, <clears throat> having to not having to, but being asked or messing up or, or tripping on something. Um, that's kind of where it started. At least that's where I perceive it to where, where a lot of this has started. I don't know what you kind of see on that. but Well, certainly what you're talking about, uh, the evolution of language and how people are wanting to, to use it, um, which is a whole other discussion and fascinating discussion yeah. about language and how it's used. Um, particularly what you're mentioning, I, I've only really heard in reference to a trans com a community that's, you know, wanting people to address according, address them according to the pronouns that they identify with. Um, but the, the larger LGBTQ plus um, situation has been around for a lot longer than that. And, and Basically, what we're seeing it is increasing in its um, voice and its presence in in a culture and in a society, and um, gaining uh, an enormous presence in in all sorts of expressions, from advertising to movie making to um, you know the job front and everything. So, um, I, I don't. It's certainly not a new phenomenon. It's not a new thing. It's, it's taken years to develop, but uh, it's certainly at the forefront of much of the social discussion these days. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's kind of where I was going with that was that increasing voice. Um, a lot of the times, finds its self popping up in in reference to pronouns. But no, it certainly has been LGBTQ and sexual identity and gender. Um, I guess confusion or or identifying something else has definitely been around a long time, like you said. So, like, was that has this been an issue that has been um, around even biblical times before biblical times? Like, we all like I think a lot of us have probably known like some of this was around in the Greek and Roman Empire, at least towards its later stages. What that kind of looked like back in the context of, I guess closer to Jesus's time or, or even just biblical times? Well, definitely it, it was, it's been a part of culture and society for, for centuries. And the, the only way that we would know that from a biblical perspective is that it's specifically mentioned 
throughout the New Testament and in the Old Testament. So that that choice, that identity, that behavior was a part of the historical uh, situation at the time that the scriptures were being recorded. And in um, certainly in the Old Testament law, we see some references to it. And probably the reason that God is addressing it in the Old Testament law is that it was something that was occurring in society. Mm-hmm. And God was stating or declaring his particular um, design and desire about those sorts of things. And then the Apostle Paul, in a number of his letters in the, the New Testament, very specifically addresses it. And so that would lead me to believe that, yes, in the times of the first century, particularly when um, the, the letters of the New Testament are being written, there's direct statements addressing it. So, I, you know, I, we can talk about society being different or culture being different between the 21st century and the 1st century, but a lot of that would be around uh, sort of the technological advances of civilization, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's really about the moral um, development through the centuries. I think if you went back to the first century, if if you could live back in the first century, we would see a lot of the very same sort of moral, ethical dilemmas happening in that society at the time from, you know, racism to um, homosexuality to, you know, a host of any other sort of issues of the day we would find those exact same expressions. The only thing different then as opposed to now is you don't have the whole technolo- technology aspect where it's it's being broadcast to, in everybody's experience, whether that's television or social media or politics or stuff like that, just because there was limits back then to how people understood and were aware of things. But it's not a new thing. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I definitely agree with that. Like, people... The issues and the, and the moral choices people face are certainly the same as they've always been for the most part. Um, so I guess let me, let me throw this one at you. Okay. With that perspective, we would all agree that something like um, uh, slavery was morally and ethically wrong. We would agree that um, stoning someone due to the breaking of a sin now is at least unacceptable. Right. Um, so if those certain things are unacceptable, and I guess this is what you would call quote-unquote progress, um, we've progressed out of looking at those things as being acceptable. Because um, back then, say, you know, what, way back then, slavery was seen as being an acceptable part of at least the economic uh, structure of society, stoning women, stoning men, whoever was found that was seen as acceptable during that time. We progressed away from that. Now, slavery is unacceptable. It still exists in some parts of the world, unfortunately. We're moving away from it. Like, as I said, stoning, no longer acceptable. <clears throat> A lot of people would say, or at least argue, that, well, homosexuality or LGBT, whichever of those you would like to discuss, in that same way, used to be unacceptable. However, now, as we progressed through time and um, our understanding of things is, be- is and should be 
acceptable, isn't a moral wrong, um, may even perhaps be how God has created an individual. So what would you say to that one? <laughs> um, culturally and morally, yes, it has progressed to become more acceptable. That in no way, in my mind, in no way means that it's become acceptable to God. Um, so you have these, with the passing of time, there's some things that God has never budged on. And I think the Old and New Testament are, are very illustrative in this particular regard. So like in the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament, you have the Mosaic Law. Mm-hmm. And believers at that time, the way that they related to God had to do with some sort of um, a conformity to the instructions of the law. And by obeying the law, by honoring the law, they were granted a righteousness that God would accept for them to be in a relationship with him. So then, then we come to the cross and Christ's death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, and all of that changes. So now a person doesn't come into a relationship with God by obedience to the law. They come into a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ and his work of the cross and the resurrection. So what changed was how people relate to God or how people become, how people come into a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things there's a lot of things that the law that changed from the law after the cross. And there's some things that didn't change. And one of the things that didn't change was God's appraisal of sin and what he finds to be contrary to his desire and design, what, what his holiness finds offensive. And so um, hatred in the Old Testament, God, God still doesn't approve of hatred just because the cross happened. Um, stealing was as wrong, is as wrong now as it was then. And then sexual immorality, God didn't change his mind on that just because of the work of the cross. And so the work of the cross is for a sinner and for sin. But God isn't saying, oh, well, now what used to be sin isn't sin anymore. I approve it. I affirm it. I applaud it. It's allowed. We, we, that's, not, that's not the shift that happens pre-cross, post-cross. And so I think there's things that we learn about. Be, uh, there's things that we learn in the Old Testament that are beyond the law. We're just learning about the heart of God. We're learning about the character of God. We're learning about the design and desire of God. And so while we may be free of the Mosaic law in this current period of time, we still understand something about what the law taught us about the character of God. Mm-hmm. And the character of God in relationship to sin has not changed. And so that's why in the Old Testament you see very clear prohibitions against a homosexual kind of uh, homosexual relationship. And then you see that same prohibition or warning against 
in the New Testament because there's some things that are, um, you know, they're, they're cross-cultural when it comes to how God sees and um, evaluates things. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And like, <clears throat> I think for those people who would, would argue that, well, progress, being progressive is obviously going to get you to a place to where things that were once seen as being sinful, things that weren't seen as being unacceptable or bad or immorally or immoral, um, would would say that, well, the, the Bible doesn't necessarily speak out against some of these aspects. I mean, obviously, it does with homosexuality, um, but, but it has been culturally accepted, accepted now. And so I guess what is the... Um, you, you talk a lot about design and how God has a design. And so I guess before we get too far into maybe some of these questions... Explain what you understand to be God's design of both sexuality and even maybe gen- and gender um, so that we can have at least that set up and constructed before we see how how the Christians should then um, interact with and understand this LGBTQ yeah. plus community. Yeah, I, again, I, I, this may be kind of a unique perspective and I, I'm not deciding that I'm right. I'm just deciding this is kind of a paradigm that I've learned to operate in or operate within as I um, encounter the scriptures. Is God is a designer. He moves with purpose. He has plan. He he doesn't waste time and energy. He doesn't just, you know, make stuff up. So he's very purposeful, very intentional. And I think the world screams of design um, in the creative order and uh, in a host of other expressions. So I think that God had design for uh, mankind. I think he had design for sexuality. I think he had design for relationships. I think he had design for money. He had design for work, design for um, recreation, he had designed for worship. I mean, every I in my mind, everything there's an original God ordained design for it. And the um, the premise that I work from is when you stick with the design, it works and it works well. And the the backwash of consequences or pain or um, negative impact is limited or diminished because you're you're using God's design in the way that it was intended and in by nature it's blessed there's a blessing that comes with living within the design there's a design for the family and there's a design for kids relationship with parents and parents relationship with children and so when when people honor the design it just goes better um, I mean, the Apostle Paul tells the first century church in Ephesus when he's talking to parents and children, and, and he reminds them, children, obey your parents, for this is you know good in the sight of God, so that your life may go well. Okay, mm-hmm. there's a design and the blessing that comes with the design. And I think history would show that every time 
human beings have stepped outside of God's design, there were there was a downside. There was consequences, and there was pain, and there was um, fear, and there were you know there's a, a negative net effect. And so, certainly, then to be consistent, I'm I'm going to th- um, I'm going to adopt God's design. I, I think it's I think it's fairly uh, in my mind it's it's non-negotiable, and that is God designed gender, male and female. There, there weren't 25 other expressions of that. What a radical statement, Paul Wilson. <laughs> so there's male and there's female, and there's <laughs> certain characteristics of male that God designed. There's certain characteristics of female that God designed, and our bodies, like our physical bodies, are perfect reflections of those unique characteristics and that design and the ways that they operate uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, um, these are all very unique God-given designs to male and female. And then God designs marriage and how it was intended to be done. And when we stay within the design, the likelihood of blessing is bigger and better. And so then consequently, you have the whole pursuit of sexual expression or sexual intimacy. I think there's a design. And you can look at how the male body was designed and how the female body was designed to see how those two designs were to work together. I mean, it's, it's completely obvious, <laughs> right? And so I think because of those sorts of clues of gender and marriage and sexual intimacy, there's a design that when we stay within the design, we know the blessing of God. And when we stray beyond that design, uh, there's pain, there's hurt, there's consequences. And, and we can even talk about that in terms of a heterosexual relationship. When, when people experience sexual intimacy outside of the, the bonds of marriage and the safety of marriage, well, there's a greater and higher likelihood of pain yep. and hurt and confusion and frustration. And why? Because it's not how it was designed. And so um, there's, there's, there's so many uh, illustrations of this is um, in, in, in the discussion that leads me to come to the place that says a man and a woman making a commitment of a vow to one another before God in marriage, experiencing sexual intimacy and all of its expressions as God provides for in the safety of that particular arrangement um, can be enjoyed and pursued. And at times um, it results in this wonderful expression of new life, uh, a birth of a child, and that's all an expression of the blessing. And then any time that we pursue something that's contrary to that, whether that's uh, sexual intimacy outside of marriage or whether that's pornography or you know a host of other sexual expressions that are not in keeping with God's design then there's consequences there's there's backwash there's pain and frustration and so that's where I begin I, I begin with the the design um, theory uh, or the design paradigm 
And I kind of work from there. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's the paradigm that I've found to be most um, reliable when it comes to a march through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is um, do my best to understand what is the original design and how do I live according to it or, or inviting other people to live in relationship to that design. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess in response to like that type of idea, I've heard people say, well, I was essentially born this way. You heard that a lot when um, they were trying to legalize uh, gay marriage. And not to bring in politics in this, I was just using an example. But they would say that, whether they believe in God or not, that them being any of those types of orientations is actually their design. Um, I've heard that that argument has been leveled at me, right? There's an example before. And I would always say, well, how many, and again, this isn't supposed to be like demeaning or anything, but like how many fingers and toes does a human person have? And they'd be like, well, 10 toes and 10 fingers. Like, okay, well, some people are born with eight. Does that mean that we should change that understanding of mm. how humans exist um and so i guess that that would always be my response to it so i guess what would your response be to somebody who would say look well i was this is my design um because i guess for a lot of people th- then there's if you say that it's not well then there's some type of confusion whether that be ideologically or even to the point of like actual psychological confusion which is kind of hard to nicely say to someone in a discussion (laughs) you know and so um especially somebody who's actually dealing with it and so i guess what would that what would that response be from you um yeah i mean it's a huge question Huge, <laughs> huge discussion about nature versus nurture and, you know, what formative influences in a child's life leads them to a certain attraction or desire. Um, that, that, that's so complex on so many levels, you know, of a person's lived experience and the psychology behind it and stuff. And... You know what, I, I don't fancy myself as being some sort of subject matter expert on the explanation yeah. of the why. So I'm going to retreat to a theological premise that I work from, and um, it's, it's not everybody's favorite premise to hear, or you know, they, there's certainly lots of objections to it. But... Um, the truth of the matter is that we as human beings, all of us, me and you, and everybody else, we have been impacted by the nature of sin mm-hmm. that is a part of our, our lives. It's the, our nature is sinful at a level that we don't even, aren't even comfortable admitting. Um, Bible you know, essentially describes it as completely sinful. We are depraved people, and were it not for certain social checks and balances, we're capable of anything. That's 
and that's uh, that's not me saying that. That's God essentially saying we we are sinners, and we're sinful. And the the truth of the matter is that sin wreaks havoc in all sorts of levels that are like physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, even uh, to an extent based on what you get involved in, it can be physiologically um, have an impact. And so, I mean, here, here's, here's the, the reality is at one point in my life, the impact of sin on Paul Wilson from insecurities to experiences to a host of, you know, other issues in my life, um, I decided that one of the ways that I could cope with what I didn't like is through pornography and went through a whole season of my life really battling that and trying to find my way through it. And fortunately had some wonderful help and had some, um, you know, had some great learnings along the way to where I started to identify, oh, this is how sin works, that we cope with how we think and how we feel and what we experience. We cope in different ways. And for some people, it's drinking. Other people, it's drugs. Other people, it's, um, it's gambling. Other people, it's buying and spending. Other, you know, a host of ways that people choose to cope with the brokenness, the broken pieces that sin has created inside of us. Okay, so I'm going to say that it's the impact of sin that confuses and contaminates and uh, creates complications in how a person understands themselves and how they understand their world and how they understand love and how they understand affection and how they understand pleasure how they understand intimacy, sin, sin can mess all of that up and create a lot of blindness and a lot of confusion. And so in the same way that sin had an impact on me and a particular expression, I do believe that sin can have that sort of impact in the life of a person to where they choose sexual intimacy outside of God's design. And so I'm going to always come back to this idea of what is, what is the nature of sin at work in a person's behavior that leads them away from God's design? Because that's, that's what sin's primary objective is, yeah. lead us away from God's design and his desire. And so, um, you know, again, these aren't popular terms for the discussion, but Bible talks about spiritual blindness, like literally being you know, unable to see the spiritual truth of somebody's behavior and somebody's life and somebody's paradigm. And so, again, I'm not trying to be insensitive, um, but I, I do believe that it's a reflection of the impact of sin on the human heart and the human mind that would lead someone to come to believe, oh, this is the way that God designed me. And mm -hmm. I just... I, I have a hard time reconciling that with what I think is clearly stated in the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. And, I, and I've said some, I, I've thought something similar is that people just have different, um, I guess, weaknesses in the same way people have different strengths. People have different weaknesses for different types of sin. So some people might be set up through that nature and nurture, how they were raised, or even just how they're, 
physiologically made up that well they're going to desire uh, or have a uh, be more likely or have a higher proclivity to um, become addicted to something or they're going to become um, and I think a lot of that has to do with how they're raised and what their childhood looks like um, but like there's some sin that just isn't going to interest yeah yeah certain I, people I've, at all I have never had any interest in alcohol I, I just never have it's never been appealing to me my few experiences with it was like it's disgusting it it has <laughs> no appeal to me so therefore i never went down a path where i could develop a taste for it and in developing a taste for it end up basically restructuring a physiological network in my life to where it could become an addiction yeah okay but i certainly had something else that was very appealing to me and for whatever reasons and whatever explanations, and I believe there probably are those explanations and reasons, but something else was very appealing to me as a way of coping. Yeah. And um, so it's not hard to imagine that for somebody else it's different. Yeah. And yeah. if, how do I want to say this? If one experience didn't prove to be positive, for instance, a, a male and female relationship was hurtful or um, difficult or seemed to be awkward and uncomfortable, then the interest in exploring a male-to-male -male or female-to-female relationship may have an appeal. Mm. And if a person finds that to be less awkward, more comfortable, more uh, opportunistic for what it is that was a need in their life, then it's possible to say, oh, well, this is, this is who and how I am, and, and then just follow that as their conscience permits and um, end up concluding this is who I am and this yep. is how I am. Again, if lots of other people could have other explanations for that. But um, I think that's the nature of how sin can affect all of our rationale and reason about how we interpret life and how we respond to it. And like you said, for some people it's one thing, for another person it's another. Yeah. Well, and what makes that experimentation or transition to, say, from a man and a woman or a woman and a woman or a man and a man or any, anything along that spectrum, even more likely is whenever you have a society and a culture actually promoting the transition and saying, whoa, well, you're probably lesbian or you're probably gay. Um, and the reason I say that is because so much of this is happening with Gen Z or younger. Like, that isn't to say... That isn't to say that they didn't exist in the generations before that, because we just got done talking about how it's existed for a long, long, long right, time. Right. But this sudden boom in in people who identify as LGBTQ plus is is primarily amongst younger people, and you can see a direct correlation with that boom and how it is spoken about in broader society. Oh yeah, it's. It's the whole, um, you know, affirm, accept, approve, and applaud um, spectrum. Yep. So if 
if something's affirmed, then it becomes accepted. If it's accepted, it becomes approved. And then once it's approved, it's celebrated. And, you know, I can, I'm 60 years old. Um, I can look in just the course of my lifetime from when I was a kid going to school to where I am today to see that the whole, the whole uh, trajectory of affirm, accept, approve, and applaud has been exponential, okay? And even in the last 25 years, just the enormity of its presence, the conversation, the applause and approval um, of it. I mean, there was a whole period of my life growing up when, you know, the whole uh, coming out thing found words. And people who were hiding in their same-sex attractions were now coming out. And it, there was this kind of like boldness and freedom and I'm, I'm letting people know I'm no longer hiding it because there was a time that generally it was hidden. Yep. And it, as it became more socially acceptable and then certainly as you saw it in the realms of like celebrity and sports and, and high-profile people, then, then it became celebrated and applauded. And so it became, um, it became an option for, for people that um, for any number of reasons found it appealing. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's blossomed over, you know, the past several years to a point where we're seeing these exponential numbers of basically doubling per generation mm-hmm. than the previous generation. And there has to be an explanation for that. And I, I think the explanation has to do with sort of the, the conversation of culture and society and, and how it's being done, uh, the language that's being used for the, the um, public profile it's assuming. Um, there's a whole, you know, kind of radical aggressiveness about um, accepting it and legislating it and protecting it and all of that. And so it just creates... A whole groundswell of um, identification with it that I think young people looking for identity and um, a host of other needs in their life would find it to be an option. Yep. I mean, heck, I graduated high school in 2017, and I think I might have been like the last. Perhaps, I mean, at least here. Granted, we're in Texas, so it's a little bit further removed. Things take a while to travel here of that sort. <laughs> um, but, like, I go back now for to watch my fiancé's little brother in different, you know, theater or whatever. And, like, I can even see the increase there just in... Because, I mean, I, I'll talk to him, and I know some of the kids. I, and I also was in the student ministry here at Cibolo Creek, and so I was like, I can see the increase just in the past, what is that, S- seven years, six years yeah. since I've been in it. Um, is much, much, much higher. And, I mean, I think, right, like Gen Z is like one in five people now identify as LGBTQ. Um, and a lot of this is happening with females, 
females have a much higher rate of identifying as LGBTQ than males do. Um, and I have, I kind of have a theory on that to some degree. You might agree with me. Kind of talked about it earlier before the podcast started, but it's just, I don't know if it's an attack, but at least this, I'm going to say an attack because I don't know a better word, but attack on masculinity to a degree, at least masculinity in men. What we would think of as like classic masculinity in men to where um, a lot of the time women who identify as LGBTQ, I think, gain more of the masculine qualities to whereas the men are becoming, they're losing some of those. And I think that might be why women or young girls have a higher tendency I don't know. That's just a hypothesis. Right. But I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I, I don't have um, I don't have the kind of thought that would be well-informed from any kind of research on all of that. But um, I, I don't think it would be hard to make a case that with all of the discussion about gender identity and the blurring of the lines between male and female and who is what and how and all of that, it's certainly creating a social confusion that um, is going to have complications because it's, again, outside of the design. Yep. And so as a society continues to blur the lines of gender and, and reframe the language around it, um, it's going to create all sorts of social uh, anxiety and fears and, and um, confusion that ends up men acting like women and women acting like men. Yeah. And um, I, I heard a quote the other day. This is not the exact quote, but it, the sentiment of the quote was, for a man to really understand and appreciate a woman doesn't mean he has to become one. <laughs> Yes. That he can be fully masculine in the way that he's designed and still have a very tender, respectful heart toward women. But it seems like society is pushing this, and we see this not only in gender but also in race, is that to truly embrace the experience of the other, you must become it. Yeah. And I, the, the wisdom of the quote I felt like was saying, no, that's, that's not the truth that a man can fully appreciate and respect and seek to understand and value the unique design and experience of a woman without having to feel like I have to be one to understand it. Well, that goes for women too, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. Hey, you can go and have an amazing career and be successful. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to be a man or, or, any masculine. of those or be masculine in any of that way um but but yeah no there's certainly and and again like whatever i say whatever i said before like it's not i don't have the stats right now to prove it um but i mean a lot of this too is like i think a lot of the listeners can 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 look out at society and see some of these things without having Pew data to back yeah. it up, you know. Um, but, but, anyways, that's that is the situation that a lot of us are observing, or we have kids that are dealing with, or we have friends that are dealing with, or or 
or a coworker, a neighbor, whatever it may be. And so a lot of the questions were around, well, how do we love them well and not compromise on what we believe to be true? And so um, that, that's the question for you. How do we love the LGBTQ plus community well whilst not compromising on what we believe to be true? That does it for this episode. Come back next week for part two. If you'd like to listen to our Sunday morning messages, you can find those by searching Cibolo Creek Messages. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about Cibolo Creek Community Church, you can find us at CibolaCreek.com. Thanks for listening.